Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. Thanks for being along with us for what will be a jam-packed show. Going to need your dialing fingers at the ready. We're going to have a lot of time for you to chime in on a number of topics. Obviously, there's the huge news that came in late last night. It's not often that I get to text back and forth with Keith Baldry over breaking news on a Sunday night, but that is precisely what happened. Uh, will third time be a charm with a tentative deal struck to get our ports back in action? Of course, Keith Baldry will be with us at 10 for Baldry's Beat today. We're also going to take you south of the border. Reggie Cicchini, our good friend, uh, Reggie Cicchini, our Washington correspondent there, is going to bring us all of the very latest happenings from U.S. politics. This has been an incredibly busy weekend in the world of Donald Trump and those who are employed by him at his property in Florida and Mar-a-Lago. News that Trump's legal, a, a super PAC for, for Trump, uh, has spent upwards of $40 million in his legal fees just this year alone. Just let that sink in. That's a huge number. And there are some people uh, in his circle, uh, some workers in his circle in Jack Smith's crosshairs, and the DOG is sort of closing in there. We'll get the latest from Reggie Cicchini. Uh, we're, like I said, big open phones opportunity today. We're going to talk a little bit about our traffic pet peeves. I think we all have one or ten. Are you like me and, and are, are rather vocal when you're in your car, when you're just sitting there by yourself and you're just, you know, having a running commentary of what's happening around you? Well, you're going to have an opportunity to do that on the radio if you like. You can bring your traffic pet peeves a little later on in the program. Uh, speaking of pet peeves, John Cooper has one. Uh, former Park Board Commissioner ran for Mayor John Cooper, that one. He has been an, an absolute stalwart in, in protection and construction of the Bloedel Conservatory. And he is very up in arms as to why the Vancouver Park Board is closing that place during the summer months when people and tourists are flocking to the park and wanting to go in and see the beauty of the conservatory. And and we'll get, we'll get into that with, with John a little bit later in the program. But we're going to start today with frustration of a different kind. Anybody who has to drive to and from south of the Fraser or through the Fraser Valley and has been trapped in a traffic situation that was otherwise avoidable. You know, when a, when a truck hits an overpass, something we've seen far too much of in recent months, it seems like it's getting worse by the day. And for those who use Highway 99 and, and exit on and off 17, uh, they're finding it not getting repaired very quickly. The, the problem isn't being solved, uh, where the most recent overpass being struck uh, impacts the commuter the traveler, the visitor, you know, the arteries that go to and from our ferries, to and from our borders. Speaking of ferries and borders, how about that amount of congestion? Not so bad this past weekend at BC Ferries, but certainly there have been some big issues. Are people gaming the reservation system? Do we need to update that? Do we need a an overall update to how BC Ferries operates? Because we have seen such incredible disruptions to those who use that form of transportation. We want to talk transportation. And to do that, we welcome back to the program uh, BC United MLA, Trevor Halford, who is also the Shadow Minister of Transportation. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me, Jody. Super frustrating. I'm going to say like off the hop, I'm basically grew up in Tawasson, commuted back and forth through the Massey Tunnel, used that 17 on and off to 99 and, and was stuck in it. Bare, like just squeaked by when that truck hit the overpass and what a disruption that continues to cause. Is that getting repaired, that overpass? Uh, well, I hope so. Um, you know, I think that the commuters all along that 
way have been have been frustrated for quite a long time. Um, and I will point out that my colleague Ian Payton, uh, the MLA for Delta South, has has written to Minister Fleming with some very good ideas on how to ease some of that congestion, um, given that the the part of the overpass that's been hit there. So. Um, you know, we've put forward solutions. I haven't heard back. I'll, I'll, I will say that that letter was sent on July 25th. So um, I'm expecting that the ministry will, will get back to Ian uh, very shortly. But, we, you know, we're hearing the, the frustrations just as you are, Jody, on, uh, on how long it's taking. But again, um, this is a fairly, you know, we got to make sure that things are structurally safe. But, uh, you know, when it comes to vehicles hitting overpasses, um, and the lack of response from the minister, this isn't something new. When these incidents happen, and some of them have been caught on video, uh, egregious, yeah. uh, you know, just accidents waiting to happen and people watching them, and then there it is, and it lands on our bottom line, whether we're stuck in traffic with it or paying for the in- infrastructure to be repaired, as you said, it ha- safety first here. We, If it takes time to fix it, fair enough, but let's fix it. But let's all fi- also fix the problem of deterrent, right? Like what are the consequences for these uh, truckers? Because there's so many great truckers. There's so many responsible people who move our goods. Everything we touch, everything that you see around you, you and me and everybody listening, everything you see around you was shipped in some way or form. So we're not saying every everybody's a bad apple here, but there are certainly some who uh, clearly are, are not... Um, Doing their due diligence, yeah. if if we may say so. What what should the proper consequence be for companies who perhaps are, are starting to have sort of a reputation of doing this? Well, we I think we've seen a couple of repeat offenders actually. So yeah. I, I think when we're looking at that, and the, the thing is, is that um, you know a, a few hundred dollar fine for uh, damaging um, our infrastructure and then causing massive massive delays to commuters and. Uh, in some cases, uh, millions of dollars in damages um, is not adequate. And we have to look at ways to make sure that one is an education part of it, but two is that there's got to be an enforcement part of it as well, right? And yeah. uh, and that's got to be a, a fairly high determinant. So the ministry has said time and time again that they're studying something. Um, we haven't seen what that means, but I can tell you when, when I get back there in the fall, um, I, I think the expectation is is that um, the minister has something concrete to put forward uh, before British Columbians because we haven't seen that yet, and this is not new. Um, we're not talking about one, two, or three. We're talking about uh, a significant amount of times that this has happened, and um, I, I think that we should have had a response by the minister so far, but I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going to be coming shortly. We are with uh, BC MLA for Surrey White Rock, uh, Trevor Helford. We're discussing just frustrations when it comes to transportation. Certainly it is uh, a problem that we're seeing more and more of. And when you when you reference, you know, having a, a fine associated with striking an overpass and really uh, impacting infrastructure that lands on the taxpayer, uh, perhaps there's a way, is it is it reasonable to to request that these companies be held accountable for the full cost of repair? I think in some cases, for sure. I, I listen, is that we're talking about um, millions and millions of dollars of taxpayers' money uh, that yeah. are going towards some of these repairs. And it isn't, and uh, the majority of time, it's, it's human error. And I think that there's got to be, listen, we're all accountable um, uh, to ourselves and to each other. And I, I think that we have to ask the same when it comes to our transportation infrastructure. 
And, you know, we've seen time and time again, a, a $500 fine is not going to cut it. And yeah. I think that we, and the, the, the majority, the large majority of truckers um, that are bringing our goods, that are doing the work every single day, um, are, are doing an absolutely fantastic job. And we can't forget that. Um, For sure. But, you know, we do need to make sure that um, there are consequences when these things happen. And we also have to look at ways that we're, we're dealing with our infrastructure and, and how we're holding that up. And I think that we've got a long way to go there so far. Let's move to BC Ferries. I got a clip I want to share here. This is Joy McPhail, BC Ferries board chair, about the problems uh, that have been plaguing BC Ferries. Let's listen together here. I totally understand uh, people's uh, concerns about uh, problems at terminals, etc., and with our uh, technology. It isn't acceptable. We learned our lesson. We learned several good lessons at the last long weekend and uh, the whole leadership team and the crews and the staff are working to um, ameliorate all of those problems. Let's start, uh, Trevor, if we may, with the crews and the staff. Not their fault when the no. ferries uh, get disrupted. No, and that, that that's a very, very weak answer from somebody that uh, is making $150,000. That was appointed by the NDP. Listen, um, the crews and staff there, the frontline workers, are dealing with this every single day. And I can only imagine uh, what they're dealing with at the ticket booths, on the ferry, loading vehicles on, loading passengers on, having to get bad news when uh, cancellations. And not only that, they have an executive, for the most part, that's been completely MIA. Um, the reason Joy McPhail got on and started doing media was because she was basically shamed into doing it. And that is completely unacceptable. We have a CEO we have a chair, we have a minister that are MIA uh, when the ferry system has been an absolute disaster. She referenced the lessons learned from Canada Day long weekend. Well, I would say to the chair, with all due respect, things actually got worse, not better. So when she says lessons are learned, then how can we have an 80-year-old couple that is sleeping in their car, uh, you know, a, a week ago um, because they're unable to get on the ferry and they, they're saying that they're trying to catch a 7 a.m. ferry? I think we've got you know, lessons learned. Well, now we've got a website that was left up unfunctioning for an entire day, giving false information. And then at the last second, we tell people, well, you should go rely on Twitter. Um, so I don't know what kind of lessons learned that, that she's, she's talking about, but um, it would have been helpful if she was doing media and giving some leadership before, um, before the last absolute second. We're with Trevor, Trevor Helford, BC United MLA, talking about transportation, talking specifically now about BC Ferries, a, a, a trigger for so many people who have to use the service as their mode of transportation. Might as well be a highway in British Columbia. And recently, it has been uh, almost impassable. It's just been unbelievable to witness. I, I mentioned the fact that I grew up in Tawasin, and that is it, the lineups are very familiar for for someone like myself who's grown up around the the pulse of the ferries coming in and and departing. I don't remember in recent memory, and maybe even in long term memory, ever seeing the lineups the likes that we've seen these last couple of long weekends. This past weekend wasn't as bad, obviously, but it always seems, uh, Trevor, that that by by some I don't even know how to put it. Like you, you, you can almost predict that there will be a ferry out of service on a long weekend. You will almost predict that the reservation system is going to be jammed. Hearing now that people who need to use uh, the ferries as transportation will book 
um, reservations long in advance throughout the whole summer and just book it all up, starting to game it a little bit. We've got to update, I think, maybe modernize how the system works. Would that be fair to say? That would be fair to say. And I'd say a couple of things on that. One is this is a government that last spring gave BC ferries uh, $500 million, $500 million. And then last week we hear the minister say that they have an under underfunded um, IT system. Well, okay. Um, many people have set up websites before, and I, I would think that if you've got a website um, that's listing a nine sailing weight that does not exist, and now people are either canceling their trips uh, or going to Horseshoe Bay or other terminals to, to get home or get to where they need to go, um, I would say that that's, that's more than a non-functioning uh, website. There are systemic problems at BC Ferries if that's happening. The other thing I'll say, too, to that is you're exactly right, Jody. It is an extension of our highway system. It's not a nice to have. It's a necessity to have. We have people right. that need to get on and off that island for family reasons, medical reasons, work reasons. Um, and right now, it is not a dependable service. And we've heard tough talk from the premier, from the minister. Now, I guess we're hearing from the chair. Um, and, but we're not hearing any solutions. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think it was actually this program where we had the head of the union on say that, you know, he was concerned about um, improper maintenance um, when mm -hmm. it came to these vessels because there was a lack of manpower or shortage of hours and things like that. Well, that's fairly concerning as well. So um, I think what we are missing here from BC Ferries is an incredible lack of leadership. Now, you know, no organization is perfect. It's not. But in the yeah. past, you know, I would I remember where there would be issues with BC Ferries. And, uh, you know, in one instance, I actually saw the CEO um, at the ferry terminal talking mm -hmm. to passengers to, you know, and, you know, getting on the ferry and, and talking to the crew and, and being hands on. Um, what we've seen here is that the entire executive, including the minister, to be honest with you, have absolutely fled and left it to the frontline workers to deal with. And that is uh, absolutely unacceptable and abysmal. And, you know, it's great that Ms. McPhail is now choosing to do some media, uh, but it would have been nice if she would have done that in the eye of the storm, not, uh, not after when the crew has cleaned up the mess. Trevor Halford, Surrey White Rock, member of BC United, joining us this morning. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jody. They've weaponized the Justice Department and the FBI. And by the way, if I weren't running, I would have nobody coming after me. Or if I was losing by a lot, I would have nobody coming after me. They wouldn't be coming after me. I U.S. President, former U.S. President Donald Trump speaking there about how the Department of Justice appears to be closing in on obstruction of justice. And perhaps, as this former U.S. federal prosecutor says, that might be the worst charge Trump faces. The obstruction of justice charges are actually the most serious in the classified documents case. They carry the greatest penalty and under the sentencing guidelines, they would result in the longest prison sentence if Judge Cannon decides to impose custody. So just to bring you up to speed on the latest, over the weekend, there has been a lot of buzz and a, a target, in fact, put on one of those workers at Mar-a-Lago who apparently had the quote-unquote boss ask him to destroy security footage. Uh, how one might be privy to that conversation might point to someone else having flipped within Mar-a-Lago. And some of the pages are turning here in such a rapid pace. It's hard to keep up. 
And that's why we always tap in to our global news, Washington correspondent who has his finger on the pulse of what is happening. So many legal woes and mounting legal woes at that for former President Donald Trump. Reggie Cicchini is with us on the line. Hey, Reggie. Good morning. We are tracking yet another twist and turn. Donald Trump very much taking a, a, a vocal stance over the weekend as he tries to push back on these target letters uh, that seem to be uh, being de- delivered to some of his employees at Mar-a-Lago. Can you set the stage for what has unfolded over these last few days? Well, so we know at least there are reports uh, that a fourth person at Mar-a-Lago has received a target letter from the special counsel uh, for alleged um, involvement in the uh, you know effort to remove security footage uh, from the property and to kind of stonewall or thwart investigators from being able to collect the uh, classified information that the former president is uh, alleged to have mishandled. We know uh, that one of Trump's uh, associates, uh, an IT person, uh, rather a, a property manager uh, for Mar-a-Lago, was in court today. He did not have um, any counsel with him, so that has to be delayed now until August 10th, which kind of racks up the delays. And, you know, the more this is delayed, the better it works, at least in Trump's eyes and Trump's lawyer's eyes. But at the end of the day, this uh, ongoing investigation in Mar-a-Lago is not over, despite the fact that the indictment has been laid, the superseding indictment has been laid. Uh, There appears to be more people that are being caught up in just this indictment. So when somebody receives a target letter from Jack Smith, what do we know about the, the dominoes that must fall before a letter like this goes out? What would Jack Smith would already know the answer to the questions to be asked? Yes. Well, he would know the questions to be asking and make an assumption or at least have an assumption uh, that there is an answer out there. And to sweep somebody up with a target letter, obviously, they're not just kind of willy nilly throwing this out into the air uh, and kind of taking a stab at it. We've seen how target letters have worked in the past with Jack Smith uh, linked to Donald Trump on uh, on a couple of different occasions here. Uh, and there is legwork that is put into this. What we don't really know here is ultimately, um, you know, what is going to come out of this? Is this somebody who the, the special counsel believes is going to be able to provide them with more information? Are we likely to see a potential additional superseding invite, uh, in, indictment based on any information they're able to get here? And again, this is all linked back to that effort to delete security footage, which Trump says, and he said this over the weekend, no security footage was deleted from Mar-a-Lago in his words, but federal prosecutors and former federal prosecutors that I've spoken to say the video doesn't need to be deleted. There needs to be an effort to obstruct or create a conspiracy or, or get some people involved in attempting to delete the footage, and that in of itself would constitute as a crime. So, Reggie, and pardon my novice here, but wasn't Trump's whole point that he had a right to documents, never moved documents, all of this is just smoke and mirrors by a weaponized DOJ. Why would there be why would there be a problem with showing all of the security footage if that's what uh, Jack Smith had subpoenaed for the Department of Justice? Why not just hand it all over if you've done nothing wrong? I mean, that's that's a good question, uh, and we can roll that back to why was the information or the boxes that the former president was holding on to not simply turned over when the initial subpoena was given by the government and in turn resulted in some effort in the following days to go after this security footage. Remember, Trump said he didn't have any of these documents. He said it didn't matter because he can declassify anything. And then 
the indictment came out and we saw with our own eyes the boxes in the bathrooms and on the, the ballroom stages here. Um, the reason he doesn't give the information over, I mean, that's a question for his legal team, who's obviously not commenting on anything right now. But at the end of the day, the walls, at least again in this indictment, are closing in further on the former president. Can you, Reggie, for those who might be yelling at their radio right now going, what about the documents that Joe Biden had in his garage by his Corvette or the documents that Mike Pence had? You know, because that is often what the pushback is from the right, from the Republicans or from those who are on the Trump base. They want to argue that that Donald Trump has really nothing to answer for here when compared to others. Can you can you lay out how those situations differ? Well, number one, uh, we need to point out that there is a special counsel uh, investigating the uh, the Biden classified documents incident. This is not something that the DOJ has simply kind of let go. I think it's different here, though, in terms that when you hear the former president saying things like there were documents and boxes in Chinatown uh, and that there were boxes and documents kind of strewn all over, some of that is misconstrued. The Chinatown issue has to do with a storage location that had been secured to hold these uh, documents and information, but also... The vast majority of the documents held by both Joe Biden and Mike Pence uh, were far less classified. They were far less, um, you know, sensitive. And while some of them were, uh, as soon as the request was made by the government, the documents were immediately handed over. And the special counsel is now investigating simply why these documents weren't collected back when Joe Biden stopped being a senator or when he stopped being a vice president. So they're, they're very different cases in that the documents were given back, whereas Trump stonewalled the government. And said, I'm not giving you back my boxes. I want them. And I have, I have personal things mixed in with these classified documents, which was interesting in and of itself. Let's talk a little bit about polling, though, Reggie. Even as these allegations ramp up, as target letters are sent out to those who work at Mar-a-Lago and a Trump indictment watch is on yet again, what do the polling numbers show? I mean, the polls under several polls, actually, within the last 48, 72 hours, several of them underscore uh, Trump's grip on the Republican electorate. There were numbers that came out from uh, from the New York Times within the last 24 hours, and they show that Trump holds a 37-point lead over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who sits in and around 17%, where Trump is up at 54%. And that is despite the fact that there are already indictments laid, there are likely indictments coming, but Trump is using this to his advantage. He is using those those talking points of, this is a weaponized government and administration that's going after me, uh, and I did nothing wrong, and you know I won the election in 2020, so this needs to stop, and, and it's, it's, it's ultimately nonsense. But at the end of the day, there are a solid group of Republicans who who will believe and who will follow the former president. And this is now becoming more difficult for those who are much further back, like DeSantis or Mike Pence or Tim Scott, uh, who, who have nearly insurmountable hills to climb to get to where Trump is. And interesting, too, to hear uh, other candidates, hopefuls uh, for the GOP um Per, um, position, if you will, to, to run for president, to win over uh, that spot. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, both both over the weekend, starting to use some pretty significant language to to speak to their voters about how um, D- Donald Trump's uh, legal woes are too much of a distraction. It, it feels like it's the first sort of shift by these uh, politicians who had very much sort of aligned themselves, looking to take a piece of the Trump base. 
Sure, uh, and and it's I think it's there's kind of a double story here. Number one, you're hearing some candidates say Trump and, and the kind of legal drama is a distraction, but at the same time, you're also hearing candidates like Nikki Haley saying, "Look, if Donald Trump is indicted, uh, I potentially would offer uh, an indi- rather um, a pardon to mm-hmm. the former president uh, if I'm in in power." So you know you have these candidates that are trying to speak to the base that if Trump happens to you know be blown out of the race or something happens ultimately and he doesn't. Secure Secure the nomination. There are people that are trying to build up support within the electorate to say, look, he might not be here right now, but I will do what I can to make sure that your favorite president doesn't have any issues with him. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. We're continuing our chat with colleague uh, Reggie Cicchini, Global News Washington correspondent. And Reggie, we were talking before the break about Mitch McConnell, the minority leader for the U.S. Senate, and the scary, scary moment on live TV where McConnell froze. For those who perhaps haven't been as engaged in the news cycle, summertime and what have you, what happened with Mitch McConnell and how is he now? Well, we don't actually know what happened. There were just kind of doctors on TV who were diagnosing from afar. Uh, but we know that Mitch McConnell came back out afterwards, said he was fine, and this really hasn't been spoken of. But it speaks to a growing problem here, especially with McConnell, uh, where he did freeze up for those 19, 21 seconds. Uh, and we do know that he fell three different times this year, including a fall that resulted in broken ribs and a concussion that sidelined him uh, and forced the whip in the Senate to have to go out and carry out the day day-to-day duties. And what it's doing is uh, speaking to the question of, is there an age that's too old to be in office? Democrats are dealing with the same thing. Senator Dianne Feinstein is 90 years old. She had to get help uh, in doing a simple task last week where she needed to say, ah, and she couldn't do it. Uh, They had to kind of prod her into doing it. But at the end of the day, at least in the U.S. Constitution, it's unconstitutional to put age limits on people who are in office, much like it's unconstitutional for term limits. So essentially, the U.S. is going to watch its 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 you know politicians, its Congress get older and really not be able to do anything about it. And unbelievably slim margins are causing this, right? That's why we see uh, you know you know controversial. Uh, members of of the political circus that we're watching, the George Santos of the world, where people are looking at him saying, obviously, he's lied about a lot, but we need him there because one vote can be the difference. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and, you know, th- th- at the end of the day here, there are, you know, uh, there is a, a kind of burgeoning younger population within Congress. And in fact, the first Gen Z member was elected in uh, in the last cycle. So it is beginning. The problem is, is you have these kind of political stalwarts who remain in place. And that is why you end up with a situation where the median age in the U.S. Senate is 65. The median age in the House is, is almost 60. And the president is, is 80, the oldest in, in U.S. history. So, it is sparking that conversation. How can we do this? But at the end of the day, until these people opt to either step down from leadership positions or simply don't run again, uh, you wind up in a, in a wash, rinse, repeat cycle of having people in Congress who are criticized for being too old to carry out the job that they were put in Congress to do. Certainly, that is a headline as we head towards 2024. Let's talk about D.C. and Georgia and indictments and, and how more are possible at any time. What do you expect this week? Well, so look, earlier today, Donald Trump uh, had a judge uh, uh, kind of throw out his request to disqualify the Atlanta DA, uh, the Fulton County DA, uh, and the information linked to uh, an indictment uh, that came from a grand jury or an indictment recommendation. So we are likely going to hear something from Georgia in the next uh, couple of weeks at the absolute latest. The 
grand juries in Georgia sit Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. We don't know which one is dealing with Trump, but we do know that Fonnie Willis has said that she does intend to make her presentation in the very near future, quote, that they are ready to go. At the same time, in D.C., special counsel Jack Smith, uh, his grand jury sits tomorrow. Uh, so there is a real possibility here that we could see an indictment in Donald Trump's uh, attempts to overturn the election investigation. We could see an indictment come down tomorrow again at the earliest, despite the fact that there are more witnesses to call overall. This is a serious legal problem that the former president is facing uh, with indictments in four different states. Four different states. And for those who feel that all of these indictments must be fraudulent because it's a weaponized DOJ, you know, reading those headlines and just grabbing little sound bites and things to hold on to with disinformation. Important to note what a grand jury makeup is all about. Real people sitting and listening to, sure. to the evidence, right? Uh Absolutely. These are real people. Uh, it is no different than a regular jury. It is just it is a different kind of jury to make up a decision of whether or not an indictment is going to come down. There are, you know, possibilities that you have a more Trump friendly jury in a place like Florida. You may have an anti-Trump jury or an against Trump jury in a place like Washington, D.C. But at the end of the day, while the special counsel or the district attorneys are going to be criticized for being partisan at the end of the day, uh, the process still is what the main complaint is for the former president and uh, and Republicans, not the actual problem. And does it feel as though the, the goal of the team behind former President Donald Trump is to delay, delay, delay so things get close enough to uh, election time in the United States, the presidential election, that that something gets halted or so it, it appears to be interference is is or to even have him be under these indictments and investigation and awaiting trials while actively if not sitting as president of the united states yeah absolutely the whole goal of the trump's team uh, right of trump's team is to delay uh delay any investigation ultimately till after the election if donald trump is in he can shut down any investigation because he will be the one in control of the department of justice but at the end of the day here this is donald trump now facing a real reality of his court calendars now competing for needed time with his campaign calendar isn't that just so fascinating hey somebody who says the doj is weaponized looking to get into power so that they can then pardon themselves basically it's quite something to witness reggie never a dull moment for you my friend and we always love it when you make time for us thank you for doing this thank you Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Time for a bit of a good news story here. This is sort of a, the evolution of a heritage space in Vancouver. Do you ever drive along Southwest Marine and, and look at those big mansions down there and wonder what's behind those big hedges, thinking about the history behind these places and spaces? We spend a lot of time looking around at big properties and thinking, could these be reimagined in a way that might help the community, right? We talk about densification, single family dwellings being turned into gentle density, how there can be life injected into our communities by way of adding in a meaningful way. One example of that, you may have seen it if you do drive along Southwest Marine Drive and, and you've, you've seen Casamia, rather a famous uh, old mansion, that Spanish style mansion, uh, down there on Southwest Marine, sort of at the foot of 68th. Uh, it's just, it's a beautiful spot. And then and then driving by in, in recent years, I've been like, what's this building going up here? What What is happening here? What is Casamia being reimagined as? Well, the doors have opened on a new 
Senior Living Space, a full-service long-term care home. And the Vice President of Operations and Finance at the Care Group, the owners of this care home, is joining us on the line. Gavin McIntosh is my guest. Thanks for doing this, Gavin. Hi, Jody. Thanks so much for having me on. Can you hear me? I want to I can. You're you're perfectly oh, clear. I, there are a couple things I want to cover over the next few minutes, just so our, our listener knows. This isn't just about the property. This is also going to have some big lessons of, of how to navigate your way into care because you and your group uh, at the care group uh, are also the Braddon and Point Grey, but have added Casamia. I want to start with Casamia because it's such a fascinating story when you think about the history of this 1930s mansion and, and the work you've gone through to get to where you are today with the doors open at Casamia. Take us to the beginning. Whose idea was this in the first place? How did it come to be? Oh, that's a great question, Jody. Um, I guess it, it came to be just, I guess the concept uh, came to my mother, Maureen. Um, she'd been speaking with some folks who were providing care over in the UK, where they also, oh, sorry, my daughter, where they also have lots of- uh, You're allowed. Old, yeah, sorry. <laughs> old, um, you know, Old, old mansions and old buildings that are sort of, you know, perhaps underutilized. And so they've been converting some of those into, into care homes for seniors. And so from that sort of spawned the idea that, um, you know, Maureen thought we might be able to take some of Vancouver's real estate and have a look and see whether there might be an opportunity to, to find one that would be suitable for care. And, and sure enough, Casimir uh, came for sale and, and she jumped on the opportunity about 10 years ago. And so began yeah. the, uh, the the journey to um, rezoning and designing and building uh, Casamia as a, as a care home. It's such a vision as well because this this space famously built in 1930 by George C. Rifle, a 21,000 square foot Spanish home. Many people would know the story uh, about the nurseries that had been painted by Disney artists, and and that there's a golden ballroom with a bouncing dance floor like the Commodore Ballroom. I can only imagine the amount of red tape and nimbyism that Maureen McIntosh uh, and your group would have faced at the idea of turning this heritage space into what it has become today. How was that to navigate? Well, you know, it was, it was definitely a journey. It took some time because uh, change, especially in some of these um, old neighborhoods and something like Southwest Marine, Marine Drive, you know, it's storied for having large estate style mansions on it. Um, it, it took some time for us to work with the city and to work with, the, uh, the neighbors, et cetera, to find a design and, a, and a, a building that was suitable for the area. Right. And so it took, you know, and also working very closely with Vancouver Coastal Health. They were a big sponsor of the project from the very beginning. Um, it, we have 58 subsidized care beds at the site. And so that, you know, their support of the project made a big difference as well uh, when we went to the city. And, and worked with the city to make it happen. So that was, um, yeah, it was really a team effort. I just want to acknowledge Otto, the uh, dog that uh, anybody who's a resident or visitor at Point Grey or Braddon or even Casamia, Otto is in the background. He loves the spotlight. He has a big yellow lab and he's, he's <laughs> yeah, quite sorry. the character in his own right. <laughs> I just want to give, he... no, I got to give him his due. Got to give him his due, Gavin, because that's kind of the thing about this that I, I find really interesting in in terms of anybody, those of us, and I know lots of people listening have loved ones who have been in long-term care. I'm certainly one of those people. My dad uh, was assisted living and ultimately in long-term care on his Alzheimer's journey. We we're very public about that. Finding a place 
uh, where your loved one feels welcome, safe, and at home is a huge part of of trying to figure out the system because nobody wants their loved one to leave their own personal home or the family home if, if it's a generational situation. But oftentimes care is so important and, and is it, it needs such serious attention that the round-the-clock, full-service, long-term care is required. But walking into um, any of your properties really at the care group, it's interesting to, to get that feeling of of community and and certainly at Casamia walking in what why was it or was it mandated that you had to keep certain rooms to heritage spec and have that new build space that has those what is it 52 uh beds in the in the new build the one that 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 looks like more of a modern building in the front space of the property and then the heritage piece is so it it looks so fully restored in some areas it's it's really quite something yeah, so I mean, the heritage piece and preserving Casimia in in, in as, as good a form as we could was uh, essential to the project for us. We wanted it to to, to maintain the, the all the key feature heritage elements, and so when we went to the city, we offered it to be her- designated as a heritage building, um, which which was a, which was a big step. It definitely put some. Um, you know, it brought a number of people to the table, like Heritage Vancouver, who worked with us, as well as some consult- consultants, Donald Luxton. And we we all sort of worked together to figure out which aspects of the building should be preserved and which ones, you know, would need to be modified for care. Because obviously, you know, a, a 1930s bathroom doesn't quite suit the needs of a uh, right. of a of a right. 2010 care home or 2020 care home yeah. now. But so... Interesting, though. Uh, I'm not sure. Gavin, are you still with me? I think there Sorry, you are. I just lost uh, you for one sec there. That, that's okay. One of the things I wanted to point out here, though, that I might have been missed, it wasn't a heritage site before you suggested it be, right? In, in some instances, your mom, uh, Maureen McIntosh, and, and, and your group, the care group, saved this from being, you know, gobbled up by a developer who might just turn it into something completely different. Is that right? That's right. We had to offer it um, as heritage. That's for sure. And that was that was right. important to us and, and I think to the whole community. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. And we're continuing our discussion about uh, a new long-term care home that is opened on an historic site on Southwest Marine Drive. It's Casamia. The care group operates this home as it does the Point Grey uh, down at Kitts Beach, right next to Kitts Pool, just west of Kitts Pool. That's also got an addition new build there. And the Braddon, which is sort of nestled in at Second and Trafalgar. Uh, These care homes that offer long-term support for our elders and seniors who need sometimes a little help and sometimes a lot of help. And navigating the system can be extraordinarily difficult. We've had a seniors advocate, BC seniors advocate, Isabel McKenzie on with us. Uh, Gavin McIntosh is our guest, I should point out. He's the vice president of operations and finance at the care group. And we had Isabel McKenzie on uh, a couple of weeks ago, Gavin, and she was talking about how, you know, people assume that we're already in sort of the boomer era of care. And in fact, Ms. McKenzie points out that the oldest boomers uh, are just now hitting 75 and that there will be a, a need that outweighs access 
uh, for care, uh, people living longer, people wanting to be independent, but also needing that extra help that a long-term care home offers. Navigating the system is going to be difficult for many families. Um, there are subsidized beds, there are, are private pay beds, and and for example, at Casamia, there are both. Can you give sort of an explanation to, to our listener who has no idea how this works? Yeah, well, in, in BC, we, we have choices. Um, and one choice is that if, you know, as we're sort of getting older and we want to perhaps have more support, we can um, work with private, you know, either private or subsidized um, care providers, um, whether it's in-home or as, as one might progress and, and, and be assessed for higher needs, they might move into a care home or have uh, folks from a local health authority come in to help them out. Um, I think the first thing to do is to realize that there's going to come a time where all of a sudden everything's an emergency. And so planning ahead to sort of think about how you want to age and where you want to age is pretty important. Um, We're seeing, um, you know, a lot of folks right now who get stuck in a situation where they all of a sudden they, they have an event and they haven't spent the time to think about where they might want to be for the next couple of years while they, while they're, while they're on the mend. Um, And so we definitely encourage folks to, you know, try to live in places that are safe, you know, without staircases or, or in, in settings like independent living settings or assisted living settings, or if needed uh, to come into care. And so most folks would start, um, you know, if they do need care and they've, they've come to the point, they would, they would work with someone, you know, talk to their doctor and then call the local health authority and they can help you um, perhaps become assessed to determine the level of need that you have and whether you might be eligible for subsidized care, which is obviously a great option. If you do need care and the, the health authority, Mr. Health can help pay for that, um, then, then we definitely encourage that. And that's why our homes have, our, well, all of our homes have subsidized care beds in them because it's such a big part of our system. And then there is also the option for private pay. So if, if the, if the list might be too long because subsidized care bed might be taking three or six or nine months to get in the home of your choice, then perhaps you want to move in sooner. And so then you have the choice to, to pay for a time uh, privately. And it's that advanced planning piece that is missed so often. And and even those who, like myself, have had that with, with my dad, he was very gradual. He went into, you know, tapestry at Arbutus Walk and then Sunrise and then ultimately Delta View. And we went on sort of a, a, a journey with him of learning the, the system. Um, oftentimes when you have things set up, it's like, oh, no, I have, you know, my 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 mom takes care of her husband. She's the caregiver. She's fine. She's able-bodied. He, he's got her, thank goodness. Well, what if something happens to her? And then all of a sudden, uh, it, it can be precarious in a way that that can put everybody on emergency high alert, which can be incredibly stressful for, for families. So getting ahead of that is it is it is as simple as, as finding the resources and documenting your wishes and wants with regard to advanced care? Is that, a, is that a legal move or is it a health authority move? Or are you just, you know, starting with speaking to your GP? Yeah, I think it, it depends on where you are in your journey with your health and whether, you know, right. potentially a lot of folks will have brought somebody in with them to be their um, power of attorney and, and to help yeah. them also to guide in their health care decisions. And so I definitely recommend as folks age that they think about that because there might be an event 
that um, leave them perhaps, in, you know, if you had a stroke saying you couldn't talk, you, you're going to need somebody to help direct your care. And so we definitely encourage anyone who's getting a little bit older to engage with a loved one or a, a friend or potentially, you know, it, it could be anyone just to help them uh, in the event that they are too sick. But hopefully folks can direct their own care and, and you know, choose where they want to go. And, and luckily in our province, you know, we do have lots of subsidized care and the folks can, um, you know, the, the goal of the new sort of first or, you know, basically the plan is that everyone should be able to get into the bed that they prefer. Um, right. And I having that say, list, I, I, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. They'll, they'll get on the list. So they'd say we go and see three homes and make their first choice, second choice, third choice. And if they don't get their first choice, then they'll maybe move to the second and eventually transfer into their first, which is a, which was a, a recent policy change that has been, uh, I think, very helpful. Um, that said, I mean, I will say one, you know, one plug for, for care in BC is I think we do need more care beds. And I think that the, the experience we had at Casamia was a, a long one in order to educate the, the neighbors, in order to educate the city on why health care and care beds are needed in Vancouver. Um, yeah. And so I think, you know, more cities could be doing more to develop seniors living into their, sorry, into their community plans and their official community plans to make sure that it's easier to convert, you know, properties into seniors, whether it's independent living, assisted living, or long-term care in the case of Casamia. And then, and then hopefully a- we'll have more choices because you're right, we're just heading into this baby boomer bump and, and, uh, and I don't think it's going to come down after that because we have so many folks coming in to support, to support the boomers. So the population just keeps going up. Really important note there to unlock the permitting process to create those beds. I mean, in a housing affordability crisis, a crisis of not building enough places for people to just live, but also these care spaces um, needs to be less about the NIMBY. How many, I wonder how many, how many NIMBYs in the early days of wanting to do the transformation of Casamia from from you know, a single family dwelling heritage or about to be heritage space who now might find themselves on your list hoping to live there. I think what you've done is absolutely beautiful and congratulations to uh, to your mom for her vision and putting this all together. We appreciate your advice today, Gavin. Thanks. Thanks so much for having us on. We, we really appreciate it. And I think we're just really happy that the project is now open and, and Vancouverites um, all have the opportunity if they put it as their choice to live there. So we're really, so we're really where pleased. Do- What's your website where people can go if they want to have a look? Oh, uh, www.tcgcare.com. TCGcare.com. Gavin McIntosh, thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Jody. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. I want to talk about your driving pet peeves. Do you feel your blood pressure go up? Do you start to boil when you see... Oh, people struggle with a zipper merge or the, I'm going to slow everybody down in the fast lane because I've decided that the speed limit is much too fast. So I'm just going to slow everybody down by going really slow in the fast lane instead of keeping right only to pass in the left lane. These are some of the things that always come up when we talk about the pet peeves. Uh, There are drivers who get frustrated with cyclists. There are cyclists who get frustrated with drivers. There are pedestrians that want to just ignore the cars and walk slowly with their headphones crossing the road thinking, hey, I have the right of way. But what if you don't make eye contact with that person behind the wheel? Uh, Car versus person doesn't end well for the person, no matter how well 
uh, you might think you own that space. It's it's we're in this together kind of vibe when it comes to utilizing our spaces and byways, highways, uh, and and merging with one another. A little wave goes a long way when you're driving along. We're going to talk about driving pet peeves here for the next little bit, and it's open phones the entire time. So if you want to call in with your funny or frustrating road rage driving pet peeves, let's get to it with the phone. 604-280-9898-604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on yourself. Grant Gotkatru is a good friend of the Mike Smith show. You know him. You love him. He's a former traffic police officer. Now he's a forensic consultant on traffic violations at ForensicTrafficPro.com. Grant, thank you so much for being with us again. Good morning, Jody, and thanks for having me back. I just wanted to open up the phones on this because I know I've been driving around. I'm back and forth to to Delta. I go to South Delta all the time, visiting my folks and my family. I'm I'm couple of couple of uh, bridges, a tunnel, tons emerging, in back and forth to the in, interior, going through the Fraser Valley, just trying to get out of Dodge, and it just can be so incredibly frustrating to to be navigating our roads these days it feels like everybody's in a bit more of a hurry and everybody's a bit more tense about it are are am i am i reading it right or am i just overly stressed you are you are spot on and and a big reason for it is the infrastructure especially the lower mainland has not kept up with Mm. the growth uh, and the increase in population and drivers in the lower mainland. They are, even when they put the HOV lane in on the freeway there in uh, through Burnaby and, and, and Coquitlam, they yeah. did that in like, what, 1996? It should have been done in 1966. But there was no, uh, there, was the, there was certainly a lack, a lack of vision by mm. uh, government officials when it came to how are we going to get people moving. People got to move. I mean, sure, I would like to... I, when I lived in Port Moody and I worked for the West Vancouver Police, oh my I looked at taking I looked at taking transit to West yeah. Vancouver, Not but it would have taken me about three days. Yeah, it, it, on a good day, uh, and you on know good- when we've we've got we've got these cozy uh, terms pinch points. Oh my goodness. I can see why there are so many accidents that happen at these pinch points as people are weaving in and out of traffic, trying to get two car lengths ahead and, you know, running up someone's bumper just to get them out of the way and and just causing dangerous scenarios. So, you know what? The phones are already lighting up. Uh, Grant, let's navigate navigate this together for the next little while. 604-280-9898. It's vent time. It's get it off your chest time. It's road rage on the radio time. Brian and Coquitlam, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Sorry, you're on the air. We didn't hear what you said. Welcome. Oh, sorry. I was just uh, leaving a bad zone. Uh, My biggest pet peeve is the merge lane onto the freeway. I don't understand why people merge at 70 or 60 onto a road where everyone's doing 110. It is so dangerous. I always get frustrated when I get stuck on that. And I also think you could do a whole show on the Costco parking lot. Oh, gosh. Costco parking <laughs> lots. Don't even get us started, Brian. Oh, my goodness. But true, Grant, when it comes to merging onto a highway, that is a trick question that they've put on the driver's exam now about how fast you should be merging. Well, the idea is you're supposed to accelerate so you can just merge 
effortlessly in onto the onto the highway at speed. But uh, we've all, even me, I followed people going on doing 50, 60, and you're about to get into a 90 zone. It's like, oh my goodness, and, and there is a lack of there's a lack of that type of uh, education when it comes to uh, the 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 commercials that ICBC like to put out and whatnot. They should be focusing on on those types of driving habits that really create road rage issues. It's really, well, I mean, don't even get me started. Well, actually, I'm going to get started on the zipper merging because I just don't understand how people just insist on the, I'm not going to let you in in front of me, even though it's part of what zipper merging is all about that keeps the flow of track of traffic going, or the people who don't take the lane all the way to the end to where the zipper begins. It's like trying to zip up your coat halfway up. It does not make sense. These are the things that can make you Correct. so angry. And yet when somebody just allows you to zipper merge and you just put your arm out the window and you give them a wave, everybody feels better. Let's go to the phones again. 604-280-9898 is the number. Hands-free on your cellular at star 9898 jasmine in coquitlam welcome to the show hello jody thank you i actually pulled over to speak to you guys i am a a instructor in coquitlam and port coquitlam i teach driving and my biggest my biggest pet peeve is how many people now turn um cut off driving school cars and honk at us when we're only doing exactly what we're supposed to be teaching and the legal way of driving. That's a really good and, point, Jasmine. Where's our patience yeah. gone? Where's our patience if and, we can't? Because it and, says and driving the, school all over, right? And then they also open their windows and they'll abuse me, like in front of my students. And, and yeah. I'm just like, you know, I protect my students, but it's, uh, I, I, I mean, honestly, I have no idea. Same thing with the zipper merging. It's, I just see it all day long. They'll, they'll People yell at you, Jasmine? Hold on a second. They, Come on. Yes. They have called me a bad instructor. They have called my phone to complain. And then my ner- my students are nervous, so I always pull over after these incidents and try to calm them down and say, it's not your fault. No and kidding. it's not our fault. We're doing exactly. Yeah, it's awful out there. And that's the oh, biggest thing I've noticed lately is how many people cut off um, school cars. Well, Jasmine, thank you for the call. Grant, can you, I mean, we've reached peak level, are you kidding me, right now, if we're coming after the driving school cars? Well, it's pure ignorance is what it is. I mean, back when I got my driver's license, there were no N signs and L signs and whatnot. And especially when you see a driving school, uh, have a little bit of patience. In fact, have a lot of patience. These people are just learning how to drive. But if there is really aggressive if there's aggressive actions towards these driving instructors, then I would encourage the driving instructors to jot down a license plate and report it to the local law enforcement, and their traffic officers can follow up with that aggressive uh, person um, by way of either that's a great that's a great a ticket. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's yeah. always follow up action that can happen. Right, less in the moment but more with the follow-up because there are a lot of people that I would feel unnerved if I had, you know, some, anybody really, but, you know, imagining somebody just screaming at me through my car window, I'd be like, okay, let me get, get me out of here. But writing down the the make and model of the vehicle and the license plate number and then calling it in and, and, and sharing your tail. I mean, I think that's it, real important. We got a lot yeah, of, if, a lot of calls coming in here. Go ahead. Go ahead, Grant. 
sorry. I was just go saying, ahead. if the action of the other driver is really egregious, right, then report right. it to the police. Right. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's okay. It's 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898. Lisa in Vancouver, you're up next. Welcome. Hi there. I live downtown Hi. Vancouver, and I am astonished that cyclists, um, they want the respect of uh, drivers, but they continue to bomb through stop signs and stoplights. Mm-hmm. It's this very is true. annoying. I've seen so many near misses when they, you know, almost hit pedestrians, et cetera. So I think cyclists should uh, pay attention to the rules of the road as drivers should. Yeah, sharing the road, Grant, right? This is an issue. And people dodging and weaving. It's like, okay, sometimes I'm a cyclist in a protected bike lane. Oh, it's a red light. Now I'm a pedestrian. Oh, no, I'm a cyclist again. Oh, now I'm a vehicle again. All within a 30-second span. Well, the beauty of the Motor Vehicle Act is if you're on a bicycle, you can get a ticket for going through a stop sign on your bicycle or a red light, even for speeding. And I've, I've issued tickets for, for those during my career for all of those offenses. But there are some really good mo- uh, cyclists out there on their bicycles and there's totally. some really poor ones. And yeah. the, one, the one major boner that I see pulled all the time, um, they're not allowed to ride two abreast. So they have to be in single file. So that's a that's a big no-no, and that's a ticketable offense as well. And that really aggravates drivers of, of motor vehicles. Not allowed to ride two abreast, but they lots of them do. Jody Vanson for Mike Smith, and we are talking road rage and driving pet peeves or road pet peeves. Are you a pedestrian who has a pet peeve, a cyclist with one, or are you gesturing and sort of having that running commentary as you're cruising along, trying to get where you're going. Now is the time to vent or share your stories, maybe even laugh a little. I know my blood pressure is kind of going down with the shared experience here. Uh, Grant Gottgetru, a former traffic cop, now forensic consultant on traffic violations at ForensicTrafficPro.com is our guest. And uh, Grant, we got lots of calls lined up here at 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. And Joanne, you are congratulated for your patience, my friend. Thank you for standing by. It is your turn. Welcome. Well, you're welcome. I, I haven't a, a few. I'll try to talk fast. I <laughs> when I'm when I'm in the right lane and somebody is in the left lane and they pass, you know, they pass me. Well. When I was 16, I learned that you're supposed to wait until you see the, the car or vehicle in your rearview mirror before you change over to the next lane. People just yes. cut you off lots of times. Yes. And I hate it when people are, you're going speed limit and they're a bit faster and they're tailgating you. And mm-hmm. also, I, I deliver papers and when I come down off the street and go on to the highway, people that are in the right lane, they don't switch to the left lane so that I could, you know, merge they just they just keep on going and and I have to wait until they pass me, you know. I think they could change over, you know, if they saw me. And I also I right. have a friend and he drove me to pick up furniture and he was oh, he's gotten road rage. He was calling people morons and, and swearing oh. and and he, he went on um uh on a street and there was a car in both lanes, you know. And he went in between the two vehicles, and I, I said that you, you know, you took my life and my dogs in in your hands, and I, dangerous, you know. He's really he gets so mad at people, you know. If they hesitate for two seconds at a light, he's swearing at them and yelling, you know. And and I got to ask a cra- question to Grant, if I may. Um, sure. 
you know, I once went, I was in an intersection in Kelowna and the light was green and I went in the intersection. There was a car ahead of me. But by the time the car got to turn, um, I was at a red light and I got a ticket. How are you supposed to know uh, if there's no warning, you know, signals that tell you that the light's going to change soon? I mean, when there's cameras at the intersection, I don't even go into the intersection anymore until I'm sure that there's no cars coming the other way. Good question, Joanne. Thank you for that. Uh, getting stuck in the intersection and ticketed. Well, it depends on when you go into the intersection. If it's mm. like, look at Taylor and Marine when you're turning south on Taylor to go into Marine, that traffic backs up significantly from Lionsgate Bridge. Nice. And there's no way you're going to get through that intersection, even if you enter it on a green light. So you can get a ticket for that if you know that there's no way you can get through that intersection. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, um, we do. But, but but without knowing all the circumstances, uh, you know, if you get a ticket, file a dispute and see what the evidence is uh, uh, against you by the uh, by the officer. But have you noticed something about, I've noticed this, I don't know if you have, Jody, That's but it. some of the construction sites now, like at the slide in Summerland just a few weeks ago and on the Coquihalla, they're erecting more and more signs that are instructing people how to merge and where to merge yes. and how to merge. Yeah. And I think that's that's critically important because the only way we're going to change that mindset is by having these signs out. And keep in mind that if if you're at that choke point where it goes down to one lane and you're next in line to pull in and someone refuses to let you in because, you know, they're just more important than you are, that can be a ticketable offense for that driver who's not letting you in if it's yeah. your turn. Uh, for drive without consideration for others, which is a hundred and ninety six dollar fine and six points. So, oh, I like that. But how do we get those people caught? Right? That's well, the problem. Well, again, it's just like what I was talking about with that driving instructor. You jot down a plate. You write mm-hmm. down a license plate number and describe what happened. It was my turn to get in. This guy wouldn't let me in. He was honking, yelling, swearing, you know, don't butt in, you know, and there's signs that tell you how to do it. Now that there's signs out there that are showing you this is how you zipper in, if you don't allow that person to zipper in, then it's a ticketable offense for sure. Just something to put up for you. Grant, we could do an entire another half hour on this. That's how full the phone lines are right now. I'm going to ask everybody, go to the buzz line, 604-331-2899. We want to hear your stories. We want to hear, we'll, we'll do these buzz lines. 604-331-BUZZ, 331-2899 is the number on our buzz line. And Grant, really yeah. appreciate your time. I think the answer on the zipper merge thing, we need a zipper merge hotline. We need a place that we can go, <laughs> this just happened. These people didn't let me in. I want yeah. six points. If that's not a deterrent, I mean, come on. Thank you for your time as always. What a what an exceptionally fast half hour that was, Grant. Always always is. Thanks again, Jody.